During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We, all, we set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district, Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of the Lord. Mary Grace was about 18 months old. She started having asthma problems. Any kind of cold or virus would push her into long and sometimes scary asthma attacks. One night she got bad enough that Susan noticed she was having retractions, where the, the whole belly and the, the chest seemed to move as she struggled to breathe. And Susan said, you better take her to the emergency room. And that was something of a tip-off to me. Susan, a nurse, tends not to overreact to these situations. She's generally pretty calm about medical stuff. But on this occasion, I snapped to the realization that Mary was pretty sick. Now, if you're basically slow-witted, as I sometimes seem to be, part of the challenge you face in navigating life is that you don't always pick up on signals in the environment that suggest danger. But on this occasion, I sensed right away that something wasn't right. Susan sounded genuinely afraid. Now, if you are, as I say, constitutionally prone to cluelessness, it behooves you to figure out who in your life you should look to when it's time to be afraid. I used to tell my kids, sometimes I still do, that while I know things might look scary, I'm not afraid. And then I tell them that I'll let them know when it's time to be scared. In this case, however, I didn't need Susan to say the words out loud. I could see it in her face. And so I bundled Mary up, put her in the car seat, and tore off to Middlesbrough Appalachian Regional Hospital. And immediately they put a pulse oximeter on her tiny big toe. Oxygen levels were dangerously low. Immediately took us to a special room where they did more work to get her vitals. 
and then they left. And I sat in a tiny room with a, 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 a little bundle of asthmatic terror. It's difficult to describe how alone you feel when you know something is terribly wrong with your child and you don't see anyone on the immediate horizon motivated by the same sense of urgency that you happen to feel. It's just you and a baby struggling to breathe. Looking at faded posters explaining the dangers of smoking or the onset of emphysema. The world which felt utterly ordinary just hours earlier now felt like a hostile and forbidding place cast in shadows and echoes. And so there we sat, my little girl struggling to breathe, and me, an oblivious young father, now paralyzed by the fear of the unknown, and, and, and the debilitating sense of struggling by yourself. I eventually saw a big man standing in the doorway when I looked up, and immediately I relaxed. How's our little girl? My buddy, Mary Grace's godfather, Bill Bichelia, asked me. Now, as many of you know, Bill is a funeral director, which, though it sounds frightening, was a massive relief because Bill was also the deputy coroner, which meant that he knew just about everybody in town. Actually, I think he probably knew everybody in town regardless of his vocation. When I asked how he knew we were there, he said, well, that somebody in the ER had recognized me and they called him to tell him that I was there with my daughter. So he then went on to tell me that he'd call the ER doctor on duty and told him to take special care of us. And he said, I, I just had to make sure our baby girl was all right. And he smiled. And just then the doctor walked in. Does that kind of thing ever happen to you? You're out on your own in unfamiliar territory and you see a face that somehow immediately puts you at ease. Now you may or may not know the person, but somehow that face itself gives you just enough strength, direction to carry on. Has that ever happened to you? Philippi was bound to be interesting for Paul, Silas, Timothy, and company. As you go back in Acts chapter 16, you go back to verse 6, you see that the Holy Spirit didn't allow them to speak a word in Asia. And then in verse 7, they were prevented from going to Bithynia by the Spirit of Jesus. They were presumably tired of the scavenger hunt, and they finally headed off to Troas, But on the way, Paul had a vision of Macedonian man pleading with Paul's company to come to Macedonia to help the folks out there. Convinced, as Luke tells us, that God had called them to proclaim the good news to them, Paul and the gang headed for Philippi by way of Samothrace and Neapolis. So, of course, Philippi was bound to be interesting. Now, why do I say that? Well, I mean, think about it. Paul and Silas had set out for Antioch from Jerusalem way back in chapter 15. They were now on official business. Apparently, there had been a big flap in the Jerusalem church over whether these new Gentile converts that had started popping up since Peter went to Cornelius' house, 
controversy over whether or not these converts had to be circumcised in order to become Christians. That is to say, did they have to become Jews first to make themselves respectable Christians? Now remember, they were all Jews at this point. Even, even the Christians were Jews. My buddy Greg Davis's dad, the Jewish doctor from Knoxville that I talked about last week, he was eating at a drugstore counter a few years back, trying to relive some of the memories of the civil rights era, when an enthusiastic young man sidled up next to him. And the young guy, he's got really nice hair, leaned over from the next stool and he said, do you know Jesus? Without looking up from his coffee, Greg's dad said, know him, he's a member of my tribe. See, all those Christians were Jews. Even Jesus was a Jew. The whole Jewish-Gentile controversy got heated up to the point where the church called a huge council meeting in Jerusalem. And they debated and they argued about whether it was necessary to observe ritual Jewish conversion before observing baptism, which itself was the Christian conversion, right? And finally, after great deliberation, the council decided that new Gentile converts didn't have to follow Jewish traditions before converting to Christianity. However, they offered a caveat to these new converts. One, don't eat meat offered to idols. Two, abstain from fornication. Three, don't eat meat from animals that have been strangled. And four, don't eat blood. It's not that hard, right? But your first reaction might be, well, look, if they're going to accept them as Christians, well, then they shouldn't put any Jewish restrictions on them. Should they? Now, if you thought that, it would be understandable. I mean, most people nowadays don't go in much for conditional acceptance. Modern folks prefer a God who accept us, accepts us on our own terms and at our own pace. But let me just say, before we get too out of sorts with the church hierarchy in Jerusalem, bear in mind that everybody thought you had to be Jewish to be Christian just a short while before. Gentiles were, by and large, a group of folks to be meticulously avoided. As much by the new followers of Jesus as by their non-Messianic Jewish siblings. So not requiring circumcision, not requiring that everybody keep kosher before baptism was a considerable policy shift in the church. The implications of the Jerusalem Council were, were so sweeping, in fact, that the council decided they better send out a question and answer team to make sure that the new churches in the outlying areas understood what was going on. Because of the magnitude of this shift, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and Judas were commissioned to carry the news of this new decision allowing Gentiles into the church so that they might clear up any misunderstandings. Now, having done their duty, Paul said to Barnabas that maybe they ought to go back to the cities where they'd already established churches, presumably to share, to share the same late-breaking news from the Jerusalem Council about the recently updated standards for Gentiles. But it was at this point that Paul and Barnabas had a kind of parting of the ways. 
Paul left with Silas. Barnabas took John Mark. And on their journey, Paul and Silas picked up a new convert whose name was Timothy. Timothy's father was himself a Gentile. Now, as chapter 16 opens, our text for this morning, Luke tells us, as they went town to town, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. The, the rules, they told them the new rules, and things started to explode. All of which sets the stage for Lydia. Because Paul, in our text for this morning, received a vision about heading over to Macedonia after being told to stay out of Asia and Bithynia. And so off they went. You can imagine that things were going to be unusual when they got to Philippi, because I don't know about you, but I usually get my travel itineraries from the internet, not from some supernatural travel agent. But there you go. We had a visitor at a former church one time who, when asked what, where, where he was headed after church, said he didn't know from day to day he was just waiting for the Holy Spirit to tell him where to go. Apparently, and unbeknownst to us, the Holy Spirit told him to hide out in the building after worship and then break into our offices and steal stuff. But apparently that's another story. Anyway, waiting to be moved by the Spirit, it sounded kind of strange coming from our visitor, but, I mean, we've had some experience with the Bible, so it it's not quite as big a surprise in Acts because when the Holy Spirit tells someone to go in Acts, things are fixing to get interesting. So this whole new retinue lands in Philippi with a message of good news for the Gentiles. God is pleased to have a relationship with these former untouchables, a relationship that does not rely on Jewish sacrificial sacred rites. And so when the Jewish Sabbath rolls around, what's the first thing that this company does? Well, they go to the synagogue. They stroll down to the river where they supposed there was a place of prayer. And guess who they ran into? This bunch of women which under ordinary circumstances on any other day might not be so exceptional given the culture they were might have been gathering they might be gathering for laundry or gossip or babysitting cooperative but they're not gathered for any of those things today apparently they're gathered for more now whether or not they intend to gather for prayer we don't know what we do know is that after Paul shows up church starts in earnest that little spontaneous church service there on the banks of the river turned into First Church Philippi. Why? Well, because a woman named Lydia, not unlike Paul, listened to what God had to say and responded. Now, in shaping his narrative, Luke tells us a great deal about the reign of God that Paul and his cohort are proclaiming. Just 
by the shape of the story itself. See, Philip is in modern-day Eastern Europe. And as such, Lydia is accorded the honor of being the first European convert to Christianity. Interesting, don't you think, that in a heavily patriarchal society, Luke takes special care to let us know that the first person to convert under the new rules from the Jerusalem Council is a woman. And not just any woman either. Lydia, not unlike her sister in the faith, Dorcas, is an important woman in the community, a seller of purple dye, a well-to-do merchant, a landowner. <coughs> in other words, Lydia wasn't the type of person typically found in the early church's pictorial directory, which tended to be made up of folks pretty far down on the socioeconomic ladder. But Paul listened to the call of God, and here we have Lydia. Now, soon after Lydia converted, Luke tells us, Paul and his supporters were headed for a place of prayer when they were accosted by an annoying demon-possessed girl upon whom Paul, in a fit of irritation, performed an exorcism, as you do. Well, apparently, Paul had killed the goose that laid the golden fortune-telling egg because this demon-possessed slave girl had been a significant source of income for a couple of locals who rented her out for bar mitzvahs as a fortune teller. Anyway, these erstwhile entrepreneurs weren't real pleased with the favor that Paul had done their prized sideshow oddity. They complained to the cops who ran Paul and Silas down to the county jail where they received a beating and a good-natured lecture on the tenuous nature of the local economy and the vicissitudes of the fortune-telling industry. Now, as you may recall from your Sunday school days, Paul and Silas were up all night singing hymns when all of a sudden came an earthquake. And it wasn't your, our garden variety earthquake either. It was an earthquake that shook things so badly that the cell doors flew open and let all the prisoners out of their manacles. So when the jailer showed up to find his charges making plans for a 7-Eleven run, he nearly fell on his sword right then, just to save himself the shame and the embarrassment of it all. So Paul and Silas, they prevail upon the jailer not to shuffle off this mortal coil, that, that, that none of the prisoners has yet taken leave of the prison in search of their big gulps and convenience store hot dogs. As you might imagine, the jailer was so relieved that he fell on his knees, asking, how might I be saved? The dumbstruck jailer found the whole scene so, so amazing that he immediately cl uh, cleaned Paul and Silas up, took them to his house, and had them baptize his entire family. Paul and Silas were released the next day, and where do you think they went? Well, verse 40 tells us that they went straight to Lydia's house, their very first convert in Philippi. So we've come full circle. Luke ties these three stories up into a nice, 
little narrative package. Lydia, the demon-possessed girl, and the Philippian jailer form a compelling story about God's ability to get done what God wants to get done, regardless of who's in the script. God desires fellowship with the Gentiles. Paul goes, and a whole bunch of weirdness later, there's a church. The unlikeliest faces out minding their own business when the Holy Spirit shows up and things start getting interesting. God chases after untouchables. Women become central players in the gospel game. Demons flee. Prisoners are set free. And the powerful find humility. See, and that's the thing about the reign of God. It's always in the midst of such implausible circumstances, in the presence of the unlikeliest faces, that God is busy establishing a whole new world. You never completely know where the road is taking you, but if you keep your ears open and your eyes peeled, you might just stumble upon something eternally interesting. Amen.